Jesus says to his friends, who do people say that I am? They've heard the rumors, and if you've been on the journey with us through this book of Marks, you've heard the rumors too. Rumors in Herod's court that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead, that Jesus is Elijah returned to bring about the day of the Lord. Rumors that Jesus is a prophet like any other prophet. But who do you say I am? More than the rumors Jesus wants to know from those who have walked with him and seen his life and work firsthand, to whom he has divulged the secrets of his parables and his teachings, who do they say he is? Who do you say I am? Jesus asks. We might be caught to answer this for ourselves. We have heard Mark's description of this book, the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, eight chapters in, halfway through this book, we're forced to ask the question, has Mark made his case to us? Is what we have seen so far enough for us to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? This is a question that we only get to hold on to in our minds for a brief moment because Peter is always quick to speak, quick to react. Peter answers for the group and answers for us. Bold as ever, he does not say, we think you might be, or I suspect that you are. But Peter says plainly, you are the Messiah. Peter and those who have followed closely to Jesus have seen enough to know and to believe. Perhaps we have seen enough to know and believe as well. You are the Messiah. This is the centerpiece of the whole book of Mark. It is upon this declaration of Peter that the whole story hangs. And as Peter confirms that the disciples have seen and heard enough of Jesus to know him as the Messiah, so then the whole shape of Jesus' ministry begins to change. And the shape of their discipleship begins to change as well. Before this declaration, we see Jesus doing work and pronouncing good news such that people might know and understand, desiring that his disciples would see him as the one who sows the word in the world, that they might grasp his work and trust in his ways. They've now come to that point, and so he shares with them the depths of his work and the depths of their call to follow him. No sooner has it been declared that Jesus is the Messiah than Jesus begins to teach these disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus shares that the murmurs of murder that we have heard again and again so far are not the enemy to his work but they are in fact a requirement of his work. That he is not unaware of these machinations, but he will use them to fulfill the work of the Messiah. 
In this moment, he turns toward the cross and towards Jerusalem, but with the promise that resurrection will come. Creation will be restored. But resurrection is always preceded by death. And these friends of his must prepare for his death. Peter was happy to announce that Jesus was the Messiah. And just as much as he was happy to announce that Jesus was the Messiah, so he is in equal measure dismayed at the way Jesus understands the ministry of the Messiah. Such sorrow and joy brought side by side. Sorrow and joy mingled together. In many ways, this is the truth of this day that we call Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the season of Lent. The Orthodox theologian, Father Alexander Schmemann, calls this day a bright sadness. A bright sadness. And this is Peter's experience bright in his hope for the Messiah and deep in his sadness at the cost which is being shared. These days of Lent, which we now enter into together, these days offer a bright sadness to our whole world. There is so much to grieve in our lives and in the news. The world seems to teeter on a precipice. Truth has become unmoored. People all seem to do what is right in their own mind, and we grieve the ways that sin and death mar God's creation. When we're honest, as I hope we'll be tonight, we can even admit the ways that we have helped sin and death harm our neighbors, harm this city, damage our world. To us, so much of these things may feel new. But it is only now as it has ever been. The same evil as always was, now in the trappings of these new days. And yet, there is a brightness. There is a brightness to the hopeful word that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and though he acknowledges rejection and death and those powers in the world will touch him too, he ends with the promise of resurrection. This sadness, it seems, can shine a light where there would normally be only darkness. The sorrowful way of Christ is also the joyful way of God's redemption. This is the work of the Messiah. But more than the work of the Messiah, to find brightness in sadness, to find hope in our mourning, to find joy in the grief, this is the work of all who follow in the way of that Messiah as well. The disciples are still called to follow, but now they're being told the full cost of following. The shape of discipleship is not simply go where Jesus goes, but it is also do as Jesus does, choosing to deny himself, choosing to take up his cross. Lent invites us to choose to follow Jesus, 
to lose our lives, all of our ambitions, all of our comfort, all of our pride, to lose all of these things for him and for his gospel. And in that work, we're invited to discover that we have been offered better ambitions than the ones we gave up, that we have been given greater comforts than the ones we thought we knew, that we have found a true humility which makes us, in fact, the very children of God. As spring comes, as restrictions ease in Ontario, as the world seems galvanized, even for a brief moment, against the aggressive actions of one man and the terrors of war, there is a brightness which we may say is the work of God for us. Good things for us to point to. Hope of resurrection. Hope of resurrection even as we choose the way of sorrow which Jesus walks in order to be friend to those who suffer in isolation, who bear the weight of long COVID, who fear for family and loved ones abroad. We choose in this season of Lent to linger in the depths of the despair of the world, even as the Son of God came to linger in our sadness. And we do this in the hope, in the assurance even, that he might bring light, hope, and joy to every place that has not known it before, even to the grave itself. In short, it's the truth of the line in that hymn that we sang at the beginning of the service, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Disciples of Christ, hear Jesus' invitation in these days of his bright and sorrowful road to the cross. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In these Lenten days, let us discover together the truth that in the way of the Messiah, even what is lost will be found again. Even what is sad will be made joyful again. And even what is dead will be raised again. All to the praise and glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to invite you to take a couple of moments as we sing a song to prepare your hearts, to consider where is a sadness that needs brightness in these days? How can you spot this bright sadness of the Messiah? To ask the question, where are you being asked to deny yourself? What cross are you being asked to carry for Christ and for his gospel? Pray that the way of Christ would be revealed to you in these days and would be revealed to us as a church. And we'll be singing that God would hear these prayers of our hearts.